Welcome, everyone. It's um, amazing to have you here. Uh, week two, uh, technically here at the building. So it's uh, awesome just to be united here. And um, I, I have to say that I'm really excited to be with you all tonight. Um, I was thinking a lot today on just the privilege that we have to gather as the church to be together. And so, uh, welcome. I want to begin tonight with a question. Have you, ever, uh, have you ever received a gift from someone, and this individual really intended it to be a gift, but it, it didn't seem like it? It didn't seem like it was a gift, right? In, in other words, have you ever received something where, where someone like put a ton of effort into, from their perspective, from the gift giver's perspective, it was clearly a gift, but from the receiver, like it, not so much, right? Like, like what is that? Um, okay, let's, let's just get vulnerable. So you have a, a, a grandma, a grandpa, maybe uh, an old aunt or uncle. Have you ever been here before where you're, you're at a family gathering and so well intended, God love them. You open this present and you're holding up like this thing. And uh, like with all of your expressions, you're like trying to display that this is the coolest and best gift ever. But in your mind, you're thinking this fit me in the fourth grade. You know what I'm saying? And, and also was in style in the fourth grade, right? Like, have you ever been like so well intended, God love them, like that, you know, they completely in, intended for this gift to be amazing, but it wasn't. Uh, I had a moment like that uh, on Easter Sunday, actually. Uh, my wife at times um, struggles to get the whole riffraff, all three of my kids, in by herself. And so I try to help when I can. And at 9.15 on Sunday morning, uh, I was over at Blanchett, and I was just like, man, this, this would be a great opportunity to step in and help my wife. So I called her up. I'm like, hey, hey, darling, right, because that's what I call her. Hey, hey honey, uh, you want me to come get the older two so you can just, you know, get yourself ready, and, Ma- you know, you and Maddox would be really, really chill. She said, you know, sure enough, come on by. So go grab my kids, and, uh, we, you know, we don't talk about it later, but about 4 p.m., like, I really thought it was a big deal. And I didn't do it because I thought it was a big deal, you know. But anyway, I, I like... I, I did it, and, and then about 4 p.m., I was like, so honey, um, I know you haven't said anything about it yet, but like, so what would you think about me rocking with the kids earlier, you know? <laughs> and, and she goes, yeah, she was like, yeah, that was great, thanks, you know? I was like, seriously? Like, I thought this was literally the coolest, like, outside of an empty tomb, like, this was amazing Easter, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is the greatest gift possible, right? Well, then I, sh- I share with her that I was going to share that, and then she reminded me of something that she said, well, if you're going to share that, then I get to have you share this. And so I have to share what she asked me to share. That's a lot of shares right there. Uh, when she was 21, uh, it was going to be her 21st birthday, uh, I decided to get creative. And what I was going to do was basically give her uh, 21 gifts. Have you ever pulled this move before? It's pretty classy. You take the age, and then you basically you give that amount of gifts to your wife. And so you just kind of spread it out over time. So I was giving her some cool things, but... It was all headed to gift number 21. Like, that was the culminating gift. And I thought through this. I had really prepared well. Birthday comes. The gift number 21 is there. And I pull the Ever Classic, set it on the doorstep, and ring the bell and walk away. Because I wanted her just to be uber surprised. You know, like, if, if she can just be surprised, then this would be amazing. So a couple of hours go by after I drop off this amazing gift. And she hasn't called me. And so finally, I, I call her. I'm like, hey, honey. Did you, did you get gift number 21? And I mean, I had played it up big. I was like, honey, you're not, when you get gift 21, like you, this is going to be unbelievable. And on the other end of the phone, she said, yes, honey, uh, thanks so much for gift number 21. I really appreciated the luggage. Um, I bought her luggage for gift number 21. And like, I hadn't thought it all the way through, really. Like, to me, like, luggage is really practical and like something that a woman seems to always need. 
So like, I intended it for it to just, like for it to be literally the coolest gift ever. And she thought it was the lamest gift ever given, right? She was like, she, she jokes about it all the time. And not just was it luggage, but it was literally Walmart's cheapest brand. It was called Intuit, was the brand of the luggage. It had like a red logo on front. Um, so, so, right, we've all been there, right? Where we've on, been on both sides of that where we've given gifts and we were really amped and the person received it wasn't. Um, God is constantly giving gracious gifts. Like he, he's constantly pouring out gracious gifts. And, and with God, it's not that it's just well-intended God, listen, God gives gifts at the appropriate moment, the appropriate gift at the precise time. Are you with me? And, and at times, because of our expectation of the gift, because it doesn't feel like a gift, it doesn't look like a gift, it's not stirring our emotions like we think gifts do, in some of those moments, we literally look at the greatest gift giver that there ever was and ever will be, and we have the audacity to say no thanks. Have you ever found yourself there before? What God, in His sovereignty, is pouring out a gracious gift. And because you weren't expecting that kind of gift or that particular thing, you literally look at the faithful, merciful, gracious God and say, and say no thanks. I know you meant well, but like, I'll, I'll go over here to these particular gifts. I don't know about you, But not only do I struggle with this, I see this as a massive issue, a massive heart problem for us. Now, now thankfully, one of the things that we view here at Matthias as a gift is the Word of God, right? And so I'm not going to like go into some self-help moment here where where like all of a sudden I bring out the present cart, right? And all of a sudden like Oprah, it's like, you know, the the favorite thing show. And like all of a sudden we're all getting gifts. I can prove my analogy. Like we're going to dig into the scripture tonight. And thankfully, when we preach verse by verse, the Word of God speaks for itself. And tonight, very specifically to this issue. In fact, one of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament lands right here in Hebrews chapter 4. So open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. We've been studying this amazing book of Hebrews for a few weeks and took a little bit of a hiatus there over Easter from it. But so far, the writer of Hebrews has built a very strong Jesus-central doctrine. In other words, what we saw in chapter 1, Jesus is greater than the angels and more superior than the angels in chapter 2. Jesus is greater than Moses, which is a huge statement because Moses is one of, if not the most endeared Jew that there is. And all of the while, this writer is trying to impound in his readers' minds It's Christ's centrality. This is about Jesus. You can't miss it. Well, at the end of chapter 3, listen, he goes on a little bit of a tangent on how the Israelites weren't able to enter the promised land. And chapter 3, verse 19 says why? Because of their, anyone remember? Because of their what? Because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief, the Israelites weren't able to enter the promised land. And then we get to this beautiful chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I want to read it in its entirety, and then we'll dive in head first. Therefore, verse 1. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but 
the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken on the seven, uh, of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest, verse 6. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had spoken them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. In verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may uh, may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Seems incredibly wordy. It's incredibly awesome. And so here we go. Verse 1. The first word is what? Therefore, uh, in literature, and it works the same with Scripture, whenever you see the word therefore, it's always connecting something previous with something that's to come. Therefore. And I already quoted uh, chapter 3, verse 19, which says they didn't enter the promised land because of their unbelief. So there's our point. Therefore, he goes on to say this in verse 1. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should have seemed to have failed to reach it. Now, there's uh, many things that are going to happen in this passage, but the dominating thought is going to be centered around this word rest. Let's uh, hang there for a moment, shall we? Uh, Rest. We live in a culture that is obsessed with productivity. And so for many, like rest isn't even in the vocabulary, but if I were to like take a poll of this audience and how many of you feel like you found a healthy rhythm of rest in your life, I think healthy would be few and far between. And I think most of us would land on one side or the other. Let's talk about those sides and then you can see where you relate. Uh, this side, they're rocking it when it comes to rest. They rest really well, okay? They don't have any issues taking naps. Um, th- like their morning starts at 1 p.m., um, th- these people mask it in, we stay up late, but often it's found in laziness, right? Uh, these are the kind of people where you don't have to teach them how to rest. They're really, really good at it. So some of you, like, you lean that way a little bit, right? And then there's these people over on this side, uh, and maybe some of you men lean this way because it's a part of the curse that we would not just um, be uh, drawn to our work, but at times obsessed with it. Some of you are workaholics, you long for your work, you find all of your worth in your work. And healthy rest lands somewhere in the middle. So if you were to be honest with yourself right now, and I'm not going to make you raise your hand because the lazy people won't even raise their hand, what would you say, what, what would you say you lean towards? Do you lean towards this kind of laziness, this kind of attitude over here that is really rocking with rest, or are you over here? Now, there's going to be multiple different kinds of rest that this uh, 11 verses talks about. But what he does in verse 1 is he introduces one particular kind of rest. Eternal. This concept of eternal rest. He associates it by assumption with heaven, that there's some kind of connection between Jesus, heaven, and eternal rest. And he says in verse 1 this, 
While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should have seemed to have failed to reach it. What he's saying is this, is we need to fear our unbelief. Remember, unbelief was the reason why they didn't enter the promised land. And what he says to his readers is, you need to fear your unbelief. Because the, the time of grace, the time of rest, the availability of eternal rest is still prevalent. Why? Because you haven't died and Jesus hasn't come back. So the period of grace through rest is still open. So you need to fear your unbelief. You need to fear it. Because of your unbelief, you can't enter that rest. And we see that more prevalently here in verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Now, uh, the, the them in this picture is who? Is who? Who's the them? Come on. It's the Israelites, right? Now, he's, uh, he's pointing back to this time in the wilderness, to this time in the desert, to this time as Moses is leading them. And they hear the good news and they see the good news. The good news to the Israelites was this. God made a covenant with Abraham. God never breaks his promises. God will pull through. Everything that God says will come true. We need a rest in God. That's the good news that the Israelites heard. Their information is so valuable. But what he's saying is, the information was just information. It was just knowledge. It didn't sink into their heart. It didn't cause many of them to believe. They doubted. Um, have you ever uh, had a teacher that literally gave you the whole entire study guide to a test and said, here's the test? Have you ever had those before? Those are the, like the most awesome kind ever, aren't they? Well, and I don't know what the teacher is really thinking. Um, no offense to any of you teachers in here, but uh, maybe offense actually is supposed to be given to you. But anyway, we'll talk about that later. But, the, but like we're sh- they're just like, here, like here's the test, right? Well, it never fails. Like you literally have all of the information. And yet some of these students, right, in their laziness, literally don't study. They fail the test, though the test they have complete access to. You see what I'm saying? Like the information is there. They're the privileged ones that get a chance to hear and see and study the information, but they don't take heart. It, it doesn't transform them. It hasn't like changed any of their study patterns at all. The Israelites are privileged. They hear the information. And let me say something to each of you. All of us here right now are privileged. Because tonight, each of us, no matter where you're at, no matter what your struggles are, no matter what your concept is of the, of the Christ, we will all hear tonight the most amazing truth that there is. That Christ came, lived perfectly, that he died on a cross so that our sins could be forgiven, that we could be united with God and that through Christ we could be, have this intimate connection personally with God. Like all of us are privileged now because we're hearing and we're going to continue to hear the gospel all night long. And so once you're privileged, once the information comes, the question is whether or not you'll, you'll benefit from it. What he says is the Israelites didn't benefit from it. It didn't change them. It was just information. I want to speak especially to those right now who have been struggling for a long time in feeding the head, but the heart just seems stone. Some of you guys find yourself there, right? Like, I, I just, 
I don't want to read the Bible at all because I just feel like I'm just filling my head with nothing's happening in my heart. It's time for you, maybe especially, again, as the privileged ones hearing these words, pray that God would soften your heart, that he would change your heart, that he would break you, that he would cut you at your knees so that when you get in the scriptures, that it would breathe life again and speak of the character of God. What the writer says here is the Israelites did not benefit Though they had this amazing news of God's faithfulness, they didn't listen. So he says, fear. Fear your unbelief because of verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. What is literally the most crazy season that you've ever had in your life? Where you felt like, like your rhythm, your life pace was just out of control. The most busy time you've ever had in your life. Picture that time right now. And maybe some of you are, how many of you are in it right now? You're like, okay, many of us. All right. When that season is over, when the studying is done or the tests are over or the project is done or the, you know, whatever the thing is that you're doing around home is, when that rest comes, like, it's beautiful, isn't it? Let's get a little bit simpler. Um, do you remember when you were in middle school and you went to your first overnighter, right? And you were like battling to stay up all night. But then when you got home, can you, do you just remember that moment when you hit the pillow? Come on now. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that moment when you hit the pillow, rest is so incredibly beautiful. Listen, do you know why they call Jesus the Prince of Peace? Have you ever wondered that before? It sounds really good in songs, doesn't it? Like Prince of Peace, my, you know, I don't even remember. That was an Amy Grant song or something. God, forgive me. But, um... The Prince of Peace. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace when in the scripture, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is recorded of saying, I haven't come for peace but for division. I am literally going to separate families because some will believe and some will not. So what does the Bible mean that Jesus is the Prince of Peace? When the scripture is talking about the Christ being the Prince of Peace, it is this concept It's this eternal rest, this eternal peace that comes through Christ and only through Christ. The reality is, if you don't know Jesus, through your unbelief, that's why the writer says, fear your unbelief, you will not enter the rest. Just like the Israelites didn't enter the promised land until God ordained it through Joshua. But until that time, they couldn't, they didn't. And you know how sweet it is, you know how precious it is. Take it times an unbelievable, unfathomable amount. And that's the eternal rest, listen, found in the Prince of Peace. It's that peace, that intimacy with God that through Christ you'll get to experience. And so where are you at with that? Do you find yourself claiming victory in the Prince of Peace, the Almighty God? Or do you find yourself disconnected in your unbelief? Verse 4, things get interesting. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. Now, this seems somewhat random, right? We're talking about rest. This is great. Boom. Like all of a sudden we have God in creation in Genesis 2. And the fact that God rests. Well, what he does here is he introduces the concept of the Sabbath. And I want to show you why, and I want to show you how. But the first thing that we need to do is understand the biblical concept of Sabbath. Are you with me? Now, there are four biblical Sabbaths. The first is this that we see, creation. 
God creates six days, and on the seventh, he rests. He pauses. He ceases. Also, if you look at the creation story, it's the one day that doesn't have an end. So God sets this rhythm, this pattern to life, or six and one. Six days you work, one day you rest. Now, part of the Ten Commandments, the next biblical Sabbath is the Mosaic Sabbath. In Exodus chapter 20, we see God, listen, commanding that his people rest. Of the Ten Commandments, this is the gift commandment. And I want you guys to understand, for the Jews, on the onset of the Sabbath, it was unbelievable. Like, hold on a second, God. Hold on. So we work six, and one day we get off? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I'm commanding you to do. This is, this is awesome. Like, they, they didn't see it as something that was a burden. This was, in the Mosaic Law, an absolute blessing to the Jews. Now, what happens? As we've already taught through all the book of Daniel, the Jews are exiled to Babylon. I problema in Babylon, the seventh day of the week was the day of the devil, the, the devil of Marduk and all these other gods in Babylon. And so listen, when the Jews come back from being exiles in Babylon... They start adding all of these rules to protect what they once had in the Sabbath. 39 categories, subdivided by 39 categories, totaling up to 1,500 extra non-biblical laws to the Sabbath. Like, could you even begin to imagine having to follow a list of 1,500 rules? And they were crazy stuff. But what happens is, the next Sabbath, Jesus comes in Matthew 12 and Luke 6, and he says, he says what? I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Like God has intended this amazing concept of rest. He doesn't abolish the Sabbath. He fulfills it. He says, I'm the Lord of it. Now the focus is on me. The focus for the Jews in Exodus was for them to cease from their work and remember that God had created and that they were slaves no longer. And now Jesus becomes the focus of the Sabbath. He becomes the Lord of it. And what happens is the seventh day of the week was the day that the ancient Jews celebrated this concept of the Sabbath. But, as we saw on Easter, the first day of the week is the day that Jesus resurrects. And so the early church and all of us from here on out have adopted this methodology, this, uh, this pragmatism of celebrating the Lord's Day or the Sabbath on the first day of the week or the day that Jesus rises from the dead. Right? You with me? So that's why communities worldwide, including us in small groups on Sunday, we'll talk about that here in a moment, that's why we pause on Sunday to cease and celebrate the works of Jesus on one particular day, the Jesus Sabbath. Now, all of these three Sabbaths are shadows. The creation Sabbath, a shadow to the Mosaic. The Mosaic uh, uh, Sabbath, a shadow to the Jesus. And the Jesus Sabbath, a shadow to what? to the eternal Sabbath that we're talking about in Hebrews 4. Now, I've taught Hebrews 4 so many times in this context, but the richness of Hebrews 4 is coming out so much more when you put it in its fullest context. These are the, these are the four biblical Sabbaths. So, our question is, why does he, like, throw it in right here? What is the intent? Listen, God rests himself. God commands his people to rest. God then sends Jesus to be the embodiment of what we could have eternally through Christ in rest. So that as we wait for that rest to come, we're gripped by something. Let me say it this way. 
God has intended and always connected himself and his people and this idea of rest. Rest all through the ages from God has been one of the greatest pictures, the greatest gifts of grace. Because it's God's way of saying, I've got it. I've got it under control. Like you don't, you don't have to worry about it. If you don't work for one day, listen, the world isn't going to fall apart. It's grace. And always, from the very beginning, from creation, God and his people and rest, so that his people would disconnect busyness and holiness. Do you see? If God's people get that wrong, if God's people connect busyness and holiness, the more that I do, the more holy God sees me as. If the church misses that, you understand that we've taken one of the deepest doctrines and we've literally just put it underneath our productive minds, our obsessed minds that just long to work because our worth is found in it. What we see is the writer here throwing in this concept of the Sabbath so that his readers could be gripped by its connection with grace. Now look at this here in verse 5. And again in this passage he says, as he reiterates, they shall not enter my rest. So emphatically what he's saying is, do you see it as a gift? And I'm going to explain what the Sabbath is here and now in a moment. But without even explaining it, do you see rest as a gift? Or do you see it as some burden that's crippling the things that you could be doing? Like many of you know, I have a hard time standing still. Okay, like I, I struggle with it immensely. I, like at, at night, at times, if you were to take video of me sleeping, like I'm still like moving around, right? Um, it's really found in the moments where you just, where you pull back from everything and there's nothing to do. And it's in that moment that you see your answer to that question. What I've been noticing, thankfully, more and more previous to my earlier years is that when everything gets quiet, when the whispers can be heard, when like there's no sound or nothing, it's in those moments when I'm reminded the most of how little I am. And that was always the point of rest and the point of eternal Sabbath rest. You guys see what I'm saying? Listen, if you struggle resting one in seven now, like what do you think eternity is? The whole premise of this whole scripture is there is an eternal rest that's coming. And if we struggle resting just one in seven now, like, what do you think eternity is? What do you think heaven is? I want to explain and expound on that more here in a second. Verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Verse 7. Again, he appoints a certain day Today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We've already heard this kind of uh, mentality. It's, it's the sense of urgency. The period of rest has not come yet. 
in its fulfillment. Eternal rest is not here. You're not dead, and Jesus hasn't come back. So hear it today. What are your urgency triggers, right? Like for you, what happens in life that just increases your sense of urgency? You have some. And I've talked about them before, kind of like movies or different songs, where all of a sudden you realize, uh, Marie and I were at a home a couple days ago doing uh, neat assessments for We Love St. Charles. And we were at this home, and uh, this grandmother's uh, daughter had just passed away. And her little niece, who's four years old, was there. And so we're talking, and, and the grandmother's crying. And Maria and this grandmother are talking, and this little four-year-old girl comes out, and she stands by me. And she says to me, she says, uh, my, my auntie died a few days ago. And I'm, I'm, like, I'm first like taken back by the fact that this four-year-old is communicating this. She said, yeah, yeah, she died. And, and I was like, well, like, like, how are you doing? And she looked at me seriously. Like a, a t- little tear comes down her face, and she says, I'm really sad. So I don't know about you, but for me, like that's an urgency trigger. Like I literally, at that moment, as, as I got back in my car, like I called my wife, I'm like, is Avery there? Like I just need to talk to my four-year-old girl, you know? Because there's, so, there's, so, there's something so precious about when you see kids in that volatile state that just instantly longs and creates this sense in your heart, like I just want to love on my kids right now. So what are yours? What are those urgency triggers? The writer is trying to create one now for you. Fear your unbelief. The period of grace is not over. Rest is still possible. So do not harden your heart. Heed to this. Understand this. It's a gracious gift. Receive it. Don't see it as a blessing. Unbelievable stuff. And verse 8, I love this passage. For if, if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. So listen, here's what he's saying. Joshua leads them into the promised land. But Psalm 95 is what was quoted earlier. And now we're in Hebrews 4, still talking about rest. So what is the writer saying? Clearly the promised land wasn't it. The promised land, listen, was a taste. It was a picture it was, suppo- listen, it was supposed to be a symbol to the Israelites of what eternal rest would be. Here's God's providence. You follow God's sovereignty. You believe in a faithful, good God, and it will be a symbol to you. And then David talks about it in Psalm 95, and then the writer of Hebrews is talking about it in Hebrews 4. The final rest hasn't come, but what it means is that we have a symbol too. Verse 8. Verse 9, rather. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So the Jews had a symbol. The early church had a symbol. And we have a symbol. And that symbol is found in the fact that Jesus doesn't abolish the concept of the Sabbath. He fulfills it. And so the symbol now is the question for you and I, how will we respond? There's a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now again, when you start talking about the Sabbath, like the the weirdos come out. Dude, they're they're talking about the Sabbath in there, like surely, you know, pretty soon the tambourines are going to come out. They're going to start getting legalistic about all these things. They're going to come out with this list of do's and don'ts and the things you should. No, 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 no. Never and nowhere was the Sabbath ever supposed to be or intended 
to be this like legalistic ritual that the Jews would just adhere to. It was always a gracious gift, you see? And so if we now can understand how it's still a gracious gift, what I'm telling you is that it connects us to one of the deepest doctrines, and we're going to see that here in a second. So if a Sabbath rest remains, then how should we respond to it? Because of our model of church, Wednesday corporate, Sunday small groups, lot families. A big reason why we are doing this methodology, living out this rhythm, is because I wanted me and my wife and my kids and all those who would journey with us to grow up living a different pattern than culture. Even when I was growing up in the church, this concept of busyness and holiness was just just impounded in me. Go to youth group, go to youth choir, go to church three times on Sundays. You know, don't sleep in. Everyone's angry because we're putting on the fluorescent church again. Like, it was just constant, constant uh, ridicule, really, on Sundays. And so I grew up literally thinking, well, I guess the way you respond is that if you want to serve and love Jesus, then you just do a whole bunch. All right, so I'll just pack my schedule then with Jesus stuff. But what if that wasn't the gospel at all? What if that wasn't the appropriate rhythm at all? And that's what we're trying to live here. And I can honestly say that Sundays for me are literally the most beautiful day of my week. I wake up on Sundays, and I've told you many times, it's the one day out of the week that my riffraff come in bed, you know, pending a bad dream or, or two by Avery during the week. But outside of that, like the, the, all the kids come down. And we're all in my queen-size bed. That's right, I probably need to get the king. But in my queen-size bed trying to cut a few dollars, like there's all my family. And it's beautiful. And I love it. And then we, our, our family like has this rhythm on Sundays. And it's so beautiful because, listen, my kids are getting to grow up knowing that on one day, like for sure, daddy's going to be home. Like he's not working on Sundays. And on Sundays, this, the church comes over. And we worship God and we celebrate. And then on Sunday afternoons, the family's still together. On Sunday nights, the family's still together. My kids are literally growing up, disconnecting busyness from holiness, but seeing it as grace. So I want to show you, after three, four, five years of study, what we believe about the Sabbath. This is just an interlude so that you don't get disconnected with some kind of legalism. What does Matthias believe about the Sabbath? First of all, we believe this. It is Sunday. Many uh, contemporaries would say, well, it can be Monday. Well, the problem is Sunday is the Lord's day. Sunday is the day, the first day of the week. We see it in, in Acts 20. We see it in 1 Corinthians 16 too. We see it in every gospel outside of John that on the first day of the week, Jesus resurrects. So on Sunday, why don't we do this? Why don't we remember what Christ has done? And that's what the Sabbath is. Number two, the purpose is to cease and celebrate Jesus. Isaiah 58 maps out what that should be. And as we've said over and over and over here, we will never, ever give you a list of do's and don'ts about Sunday. It's for you, with the Holy Spirit, to discern what that day is to look like. That's why, as I was just going through, through my rhythm, like, you know, surely you can follow, like, the, you know, getting in bed as a family together. But I'm not going to tell you even what my family does. I'm not going to say, okay, if you turn on the TV on the Sabbath, mm, sin, you know, if you do, no, 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 like... Like, you discern, you've got the spirit, you figure it out. Me and my family are living out a particular rhythm, you do the same. But, it's ceasing, it's pulling back. It's living in a different rhythm. And it's celebrating Jesus. Literally, on Sundays, like, 
when my, when my kids come down, like it's part of a, our whole day is just a party, man. Like worship music is a little, and we're just dancing around. We still got our PJs on. Everyone just, you know, dressed in the dragon, doing the hula. I mean, it's awesome. We're just celebrating Jesus. And so when we gather on Sundays in Lot families, that's what we do. We celebrate Christ. We get together, we talk about the Lord, we wrestle with the Lord, we encourage one another, we hold one another accountable. That's what we're doing. The third thing is this. The Sabbath is to be a delight. Oh no, the Sabbath is coming. (laughs) The Jews never said that originally. Seriously, could you picture God and His commandment? Listen, here's the deal. Six days you work hard, one day, don't do it, don't do a thing. Just remember that I'm God and that you're slaves no longer. It's to be a delight that is looked to in anticipation. Sunday is coming, kids. Sunday is coming. Everything will pull back. Everything will get less. And it's to be prepared for. Get ready for it. On Saturday night, get ready so that Sunday doesn't have to be chaos. We clean the house on Saturday night so that Sundays can be free of all that. So when the law family comes over, it's just a party. I'm not saying we don't struggle with that. And I'm also not saying at times that it's not necessarily a sin issue. We're not saying that if you don't follow all of these things that boom, you're sin, boom, you're sin. No, no, no. This is a gracious gift that God has given. And what we're trying to embody in this community is living different from the culture. Now, I'm not saying if you meet corporately in a big church on Sunday that you're, that you're wrong or, or in error. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying you've got to wrestle with the Sabbath just like we do. Are you with me? It's the same teaching, the same concept. And the fourth thing is this. Jesus did works of necessity and acts of mercy on the Sabbath, so we can too. They want to kill him in his hometown because he heals on the Sabbath. You remember the story? Like early in his ministry, okay, the disciples are like rubbing wheat in, in their hands and Jesus gets ridiculed. They're like, the dudes have to eat. You know, I'm sorry, but the boys are going to eat. Acts of necessity. And Jesus is consistently healing on the Sabbath. Works of mercy. And so if you think in your picture, in your mind, that the Sabbath is just, okay, the family, and we all just take like nine-hour naps, and that's the Sabbath. No. Like it could completely be serving your neighbors or loving your community. Like it's, it's just ceasing and celebrating Jesus literally all day long. And so all of you should be thinking to yourself, well, shouldn't, shouldn't we be doing that all the time? Yeah, but I forget. Anybody else? I need a constant reminder And that's what the Sabbath was intended for. A reminder of grace. A once a week reminder that the world doesn't revolve around you. And so verse 9 says, so there remains a Sabbath rest. Why? So that you can understand one of the deepest doctrines of the scripture. We'll get there here in a moment. Verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, I love this. If you want to make an argument, you you play the God card, okay? God pulled back and rested on the seventh day. God's got a lot to do, a lot to accomplish, a lot of glory to receive, And God establishes this rhythm in His grace so that we could follow God's example. All I'm saying is, if God worked six and rested one, wouldn't that be a decent rhythm to say, that's probably wise? And that's what the writer here is saying. Look, all of this 
is so you can better understand what's coming for an eternity. The eternal Sabbath, the eternal rest. But in our culture, it's hard because we're obsessed with productivity. And here as we close, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now this seems interesting, the word strive there. It kind of goes like anti-Sabbath, doesn't it? Because you think in yourself, you think in your mind like this means like work hard. Work hard to live the Sabbath, right? Like this, this seems like a little bit of a paradox. Well, the word uh, strive here literally means to eagerly long for. Strive, eagerly long to live this rhythm and pattern to enter that rest, that eternal rest. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience that the Israelites did. We have an opportunity now to experience Sabbath so that we can better prepare for what God has for us in an eternity. Now is but a shadow of what's to come. And so the writer is saying, fear your unbelief. Because what God has in store is so gracious, is so incredible. It is a gift. And it's not just that he intends well. It will come at the proper time in the proper way. It'll be an incredible gift. So live it now. So before I say another word, the question for you is, do you want, do you want that? Are you so attached to your work? Do you find so much worth in the things that your hands produce? In the words that your boss says? In all the aspects that culture gives you accolades for? that you would literally look at this gracious gift and you would tell God, no thanks. But that's what some of you are doing right now. He's given a gift and you're literally saying, no, no thanks, I don't, I'm good, God. And what God is saying is, no, you're not. No, you're not good. No, it's not real. No, you're getting confused. No, who you are as a person Like, you need this. I'm giving you a gift. It's grace. I'm giving it to you. So take it. Disconnect busyness and holiness. Find rest in me. Listen, God has given us the gracious gift of Sabbath now so that we rest in grace as we wait for the final eternal rest. Now stand with me if you could. I firmly believe, I firmly believe if there's one doctrine that we as a church, that the Church of America needs to get right, if there's one doctrine we better be teaching and living and embodying, it's the doctrine that's talked about in John 1 verse 14. Listen to this. And the Word became flesh, talking of Jesus, and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Look at this full of grace and truth John bore witness about him and cried out this was he of whom I said he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me in verse 6 listen to this verse 16 and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace if there 
is one doctrine the church should get right. Wouldn't you agree with me it should be grace? If there's one doctrine we should really adhere to, it's the person of Christ, and in His fullness, He just keeps pouring grace upon grace. It never stops. It's the constant stream of love and mercy. Are you with me? That's the doctrine we should be getting. That's the doctrine we should be living. And the Sabbath is our chance to do it here and now. So the world looks in. And they say, those people, they're finding their worth not in their works, but in something else. They don't need to produce things to feel good. What's giving them worth, what's giving them true understanding is something else. And then we say it's grace. I'm undeserving. I don't deserve a single piece of it. But grace upon grace, it keeps coming. And so the writer of Hebrews says, rest in grace now so that you can embody the person of Jesus, the teachings of Christ, and the true doctrine of grace. And eternal rest is coming, isn't it? It's coming. Peace, no more turmoil or pain or tears. The four-year-old girl won't be crying anymore, and it will all be because of grace. God, I ask for my friends that we would repent of the ways that we've connected busyness and holiness. That we would long to live in right rhythm simply because it is a gift. Thank you, God, that we can completely rest in your grace and that your grace has finished the work.